0: Welcome to Allen on Politics. I'm Alan, and I sincerely thank you for taking a moment to listen to this show and I hope I'll be able to keep your attention to the end of it. What I'd like to do on this show is initiate a discussion about politics from the perspective of someone here in the United States. And when I say a discussion, I I really mean that. I would like to hear what you have to say and I'll talk a little bit at the end of the show about how you can respond things that you um, object to, things you agree with, things you'd like me to cover in more depth, anything you'd like to suggest or talk about in response to what I've said, and then I can pick up from there and respond back to you in the next show or somewhere down the line. I also intend to do some interviews and other types of shows. But today, what I'm gonna do is focus primarily on some big picture ideas about politics, Um, presenting to you my take on it, so you have something to to respond to. Uh, So I'll be looking at the big picture of how politics works in the United States, uh, what my own political philosophy is, some takes on democracy, socialism, and then some ideas about how we can move forward toward a better society and a better world. So when I say politics, what I mean is something more than the usual day-to-day back and forth, Democrats against Republicans, centrists against progressives, all that kind of stuff, the um, fights over particular bills, the election campaigns. Now that's stuff I do like to pay attention to and talk about, but I think in order to understand those day-to-day kind of contests between people, fights or struggles, whatever you wanna call it, you have to have a big picture to understand why things are working the way they do. Or maybe it's better to say why things are not working the way they aren't. So uh, the big picture involves established institutions for shaping the way we act toward each other over the long haul. It's common to say that the United States has a capitalist economy and a constitutional democracy as a form of government. And that's the kind of thing I'm thinking about. Those big institutions, how do they affect these smaller political fights that we pay attention to on the news day to day? So the usual picture we're presented with, and this is not gonna be anything unfamiliar to you, and I just lay it out so I can talk more about why I disagree with it. The usual picture is if you imagine a line running horizontally from the right to the left, that line would represent different positions on the political spectrum in the United States, involving whether you want more or less government intervention in our capitalist economy. Of course, farthest to the right, we have libertarians who would like minimal government. A little bit closer in towards the center, we probably have most of the Republicans who would like to move the uh, the needle more in the direction of less government than we have now, less government intervention in the economy than we have now? Towards the center, you have more Democrats, and the position is generally um, things are kind of in the right balance right now. We might want to move a little bit to the right or a little bit to the left, but in general, not too far in either direction. And finally, when you get more to the left, you got Progressive Democrats and Democratic Socialists who would like to see more government intervention in the economy than we have now. Uh, and by government intervention in the economy, I mean things particularly like regulation of business institutions and business practices, um, taxes on the wealthy, and programs to help those who are not so wealthy. So, those kind of things intervening in a capitalist economy, which wouldn't provide those kind of things on its own, obviously. So, when you look at this picture, um, you think, okay, if we're a constitutional democracy, how far we go in one direction or another on this line from left to right, less government, more government, would depend on voters and elections, right? So we have politicians who are at different positions on this line, and they make the argument to the voting public that their position will move us in the direction or keep us in the direction that's best for our society in general and for you, the voter in particular. So they're trying to say, vote for me because I will move it in the right direction and we'll either have less or more government intervention and I'll be better off for it. Um, That picture is kind of nice and neat, and it fits some aspects of reality. We do vote. Politicians do make pitches like that. More government, less government. Uh, But I think it's wrong in a number of ways, or say it's not the most accurate or in-depth picture that we could make of what's going on. I would say that it, it has three problems in particular. One is that those on the right, such as Republicans, but even a lot of Democrats, that are, you know, more right-leaning, do not really um, believe in less government. And I'll expand on that in a minute. So to be on the right side of that line, except for the libertarians, but uh, most of the politicians who actually hold office and win elections, they do not really believe in less government. They're not, they're not motivated by that. Uh, the second point I want to make is that voters don't have much control over this situation and you may be feeling that because i think it's become obvious to more and more people that the government is not responding to what the general public wants in all cases sometimes when there's an emergency like the economic crash of 2008 or this recent pandemic the public will get more mobilized and politicians will start trying to um satisfy them move in a direction that seems to placate the voters but in general i don't think voters are really able to move the the political system too far from where it is now they can try to mobilize people and move it a little bit and that happens all the time and i think that's a good thing but it's real difficult for voters to make that change happen Um, and finally on the subject of socialism now usually people will portray the far left as taking it to the point where government intervention in the economy has gone so far that the government just pretty much takes over the economy and that's regarded as the the goal of socialism and socialist or beyond what democratic socialists might be, or, or they think that democratic socialists really have that as their agenda, whatever they may say, leaving some room for the private market. Um, but I don't think that's what socialism is about, big government and um, a lot of government intervention, necessarily, there's, there's some truth to that, but there's a lot of distinctions among socialists. So what can we replace that picture with I'll give you another simple picture and one that I think is more accurate. It is if you take that horizontal line, I would say that on the right, we have politicians that want to use the government more to benefit the wealthy. And by the wealthy, I mean people that have very large fortunes in the billions or hundreds of millions of dollars at least. And they primarily live off investments also the big corporations that they are investing in. So that represents, to my mind, the capitalist class, and most politicians are national, in particular national politicians, are towards the right end of that line. They use the government to benefit the wealthy more than ordinary citizens. Now, as you move towards the left on that line, you get to a lot of national politicians who are somewhere in the middle. They may sincerely want to pass programs that help ordinary people more, but they're constrained or they feel constrained by the need to raise campaign money and the influence of lobbyists and all the various ways that the wealthy have of um, maintaining influence over the electoral and political system. So they may want to help people and they may try in different ways, but they do it in a way that's intended not to threaten the interests of the wealthy too much because then they'll have a harder time getting elected and won't be able to do anything. Farther to the left, you have people like progressive Democrats, Democratic Socialists, um, who do want to move government policy more towards helping ordinary citizens and much less towards aiding the wealthy and big corporations, but they're a minority and don't have a lot of influence yet. Okay. So if that's a different picture, that's what, what I've done is inverted. What is the, um, what is the subject matter? And what is the foundation of our political system with this simplified big picture? The first line represented, you you take democracy as a given, and you think voters are influencing the government to move towards more or less intervention in capitalism. The second line that I presented that I think is more accurate actually takes capitalism as a foundation and says that the line is really moving between more and less democracy. Democracy understood as the mass of people, the mass of ordinary people who are not wealthy can hold the government accountable for what it's doing and have significant influence over the outcome of government decisions, okay? So capitalism is taken for granted as the foundation, and the real fight is between those who are doing more to benefit the wealthy from their government decisions, and those who are trying to benefit ordinary people more. So this gets to the question, if the United States is not that democratic, what is it? Um, and I'm, I'm not talking about the, the saying that you often hear that the United States is not a democracy, it's a republic, and then there's some contention over what democracy means, what republic means, but I'm saying something more simple. I'm saying that The United States is a partial democracy. It has democratic elements to the political structure, and it has anti-democratic elements in the political structure. These stem from way back in the time of the uh, founding of the country. The US Constitution, uh, if you remember history, uh, came several years after the American Revolution had been won And part of the intention of the people who wrote the Constitution and worked to get it passed was to limit the state governments from becoming too responsive to the general public. They feared democracy. They thought democracy meant, in a sense, mob rule, or at least the majority intruding on the rights of the minority. And the particular minority they were interested in was not a racial or ethnic minority. It was those who have significant amounts of property. So they are trying to protect the right of property from encroachments by the majority of the non-wealthy public. Uh, read James Madison's Federalist Number 10 in the Federalist Papers and you'll get a sense of how that thinking went back then. And there's a host of features in the Constitution that make it difficult for majorities to um, express their will through the government structure For one thing, as we can witness day to day, there's a lot of blockage points to stop legislation from being passed. If you leave the status quo, the status quo already favors the wealthy. If you want to benefit ordinary people, you're gonna have to change things, and it's very hard to get things changed. If you get it through the House of Representatives, it can be blocked in the Senate. If you get it through the Senate, it could be vetoed by the President of the United States. So it's just a structure that's meant to impede uh, ease of changing the direction of government. Of course, when you think of democracy too, you think a lot about voting rights. And from the beginning, not everybody had the right to vote. Not only were women excluded, and of course slaves and black people in general, but a lot of states with their um, eligibility laws excluded people without much wealth. There were uh, standards where you had to have a certain amount of property or pay a certain level of taxes before you actually had the right to vote. So over time, we've seen things adjust. Uh, some movements to expand democracy, which have been fruitful, expanding the vote to more people, trying to make voting easier. And there have been movements against democracy where, we, uh, where people have impeded the right to vote and tried to make it harder. And I'm not just talking about the current struggle between Democrats and Republicans over this. I'm also um, not depicting the Democrats necessarily as the good guys. I think the biggest obstacle today is in our electoral laws that maintain a two-party system. As long as you have just two parties, it's going to be hard to get things done. So, We have a partial democracy, and the big obstacle is the two-party system. But before I get into the two-party system, let me take a a step back a moment and talk about socialism. So I said that socialism is not necessarily about big government and more government intervention in the economy. And I want to present to you two things that would refute that. I don't think it can be totally refuted because obviously as we look in history, we see a lot of big government intervention in the name of socialism, but let's step way back towards the beginnings. You may be familiar with the phrase from Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, the withering away of the state. So they looked toward a world in which the state no longer became necessary. And that's because they regarded the state as primarily having the function of maintaining class rule as i said a minute ago the wealthy have a lot more influence over government decisions that's class rule they saw a day in the future that they were working towards when there would actually be less government government would not be so necessary didn't quite turn out that way but uh, that that was part of the impetus now most uh, most of us are familiar with the socialist societies really communist based on the model of the soviet union uh i'm not going to get too deeply in this into this but say uh, it it wasn't intended to be that way (laughs) and socialists have had to do a lot of hard thinking about how it came to pass that you had a party dictatorship in a from a group that aspired towards socialism um and, and that's that's something i think about and have thought about and want to talk more about and the other familiar one is democratic socialists in various european countries have moved in the direction of more government intervention in the economy but they were also looking toward the day when it could make the leap from a capitalist economy that was regulated for the benefit of the people and where there were a lot of social welfare programs making the leap from that into a truly socialist society they just could never figure out a way to make that leap and didn't have a clear picture of what was on the other side. So yeah, there's a lot of reason to think of socialism as representing a move towards big government, but that wasn't the ultimate goal for for any of the socialists in the early stages of socialism. And also I want to present a second um, reason to doubt the statement about big government and socialism. And that's there has always been a contingent, a a thread in the socialist current, that doesn't sound right, a wave in the socialist currents of anarchist socialism, also called libertarian socialism. And as you may be aware, anarchism is about abolishing government and libertarianism is about minimal government or really minimal coercion by the government, reducing it to the size that it's not coercing so much and promoting individual freedom that way if there are socialists who want no government or very minimal government then they're obviously not aiming at a big government just like Karl Marx when he says withering away the state is not aiming at a big ponderous um, oppressive state so there is a big part of socialism that looked toward a future where the role of the state would be minimized and personal freedom would be maximized my own position is in the camp of libertarian socialism, which sounds like a contradiction to most people because they think libertarians want minimal government and socialists want maximal government. But I think it's more accurate to think of libertarians as wanting minimal coercion, so they wanna reduce the coercive elements of the government. In the United States, libertarians are often pro-capitalists and pro-individual freedom, but socialist libertarians or libertarian socialists in Europe and some here in the United States. It's been growing more recently. Look at it as minimizing those aspects of the government that are coercive, but making use of elements of government that are intended to give people more control over their own lives. And you can think of this in a very simple sense. One example would be a community that comes together to form a new government, say a county government or a city government, as the population grows, they see a need for something like putting in a sewage system. So they create a government to put a tax on them all, and then they put in place a sewage system. So there's aspects in which the government is doing more to respond to the needs of people in a collective way. and. Coercion is not as big a part of it. If people feel like the government is benefiting them, they're more willing to pay taxes. So it becomes, it moves towards more voluntary and less coercive. Also, so libertarian socialists, uh, as opposed to libertarians in the United States in general, have more faith in collective efforts than in individual efforts. They don't focus much on individual freedom. That's not true of all libertarian socialists but the more socialist of the libertarian socialists, in my opinion, see uh, collective action as important. Mutual aid, voluntary associations, and most importantly, at the workplace, workplace democracy. That's the way to give people more control over their life is in realms where we have to cooperate and work together, giving us all a say in how that work is performed. So that's libertarian socialism. That's where I'm coming from. Going back to the two-party system, I'm not going to go too deeply into this today because I'd like to talk about it in future shows. But the two-party system, if you think of it this way, it's kind of easy to comprehend. If there's only two parties that have a good chance of winning the elections, and sometimes in a lot of places only one party, either the Republicans or Democrats, with little competition from the other party, it's much easier for the wealthy to gain influence over that party. Because people in general have no place else to go. They can try to go to alternative parties, but the way the voting system is set up makes it very difficult for those parties to grow and people get discouraged and revert back to the two parties often. So I'll say more about that in the future, but I do think the two-party system is the greatest obstacle. So where can we go from here? If this is where we find ourselves, I think a program to address those things would have to include five elements, some more short-term, some long-term, but n- none of them easy to do. I do think uh it's worth working towards these things and hoping that we're prepared for another crisis like an economic crash or an environmental catastrophe to push this program forward. You've got to have a vision to take advantage of those kind of situations because for sure the people on the other side have ideas that they want to implement that are not necessarily to our benefit. So disregarding all the other policy areas that are important, environmental challenges, racial justice, all these things that are important. I'm going to focus on just a set of things that have to do with our political and economic systems. First is we've got to change our methods of voting to make it more possible for people to exit the major parties when they're dissatisfied and challenge the candidates of the major parties. If it doesn't abolish the two-party system, which I don't think it will, it will move them in that direction as they see themselves losing people. So bringing more voices into the conversation so people have more ideas about what's possible and more alternatives when it comes time to vote. That's the first and most important thing. Next, we gotta give people minimum basic securities. That would be, number one, government provided health insurance for everybody like Medicare for All, and number two, a universal basic income. Both those things are policy ideas I plan to give attention to in future programs. And then finally, and most difficult, is changing the economic system revolving around work and investing decisions. As capitalism fundamentally to me is not about free markets so much or even private property. It's about the fact that business organizations are run to make profit for investors. They're not run primarily to serve the public's needs or to benefit workers or create jobs or any of those things that are usually presented as the benefits of capitalism. If they could go in the opposite direction and make profits, they can and will do that, as we've seen. So workplace democracy, that is, making a law that says any corporation or large business measured in terms of employment or revenues The workers get the say in voting on the board of directors, not the investors. The investors essentially become just that, investors. They can get a return not in the form of profits, but in the form of interest. So that's a big step, workplace democracy. And another one is public banking. We need a system of public banking to take um, investments and especially public sector investments and deposits out of the private banking system and into a a public banking system that is aimed at serving the needs of the public our banking system where people deposit money and where loans come from is largely in private hands now aimed at making a profit for shareholders i think we have to move more in the direction of creating a public banking system that would first give government Entities a place to deposit their funds While they're not using them or in the interim between collecting taxes and spending And a place where they can sell their bonds To do public programs that benefit people in their communities. So I'm thinking not of one big Public banking system that completely replaces any private banking. I'm thinking of um, banks that are created by large government institutions such as state governments big counties big cities big big in terms of population um i so i think that's it those five things changing the voting methods universal basic income health care for all workplace democracy and a public banking system each of which i want to devote at least a program to probably several programs as we go forward <clears throat> so if you want to respond to any of these ideas, either to challenge them, and I hope you at least say where we do have common ground as well as where we disagree, either to challenge them or to present alternative ideas or to ask me to to explain something in greater detail or people you think I should interview whatever you'd like to which directions you'd like to see this program go, I've given it a start. I want to hear from you. The two best places to do that is go to my YouTube channel, Alan on Politics, and make comments there. You can also subscribe and hit the notification button so you know when a new program has been released, or on the Facebook page, Alan on Politics, because I'll be checking that as well so i hope you got something out of this show i hope you have something to say to me in response and i look forward to uh, hearing what that might be so bye